This episode is sponsored by BeaverFit. And as always, this is another company that I've not only been aware of for several years, but I also completely trust and I know is a great fit for this audience. Having not only been a firefighter in my career, but also a strength and conditioning coach, I've seen the challenges that we have getting the tactical athlete fit when it comes to budgets, when it comes to space. And BeaverFit has solutions for so many of our challenges. When it comes to space, they have the gym box, for example, which is literally the size of a footlocker that when you open it up and build it becomes a squat rack, a pull-up bar, a box, and even a wall ball target. So you can get a full workout for a crew purely on that one box. Expanding out, they have storage containers that become entire gyms. You store everything in the inside and you can then deploy racks and pull-up bars on the outside. They have gyms on trailers you can take from station to station. They have tactical boxes with breaching props and collapse props. And then on the flip side, the durability is another issue that we see. So often departments buy the low bid, you know, the cheapest they can find. And ultimately, that hard-earned wellness budget gets wasted in equipment that rusts and falls apart. BeaverFit's gear is designed to be used in the most extreme environments, whether it's the deserts of the Middle East or simply on the deck of a naval ship. So they are designed to not only be outside, but to be beaten up by some of the most elite operators on the planet. Now, they are offering you, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, 10% off your purchase. So if you go to either the US site, which is graymangear.com, or the UK site, which is getbeaverfit.com, use the code BTS10, that's BTS10, and you will get 10% off your purchase. If you want to hear more about this company, and I'm sure you do, Listen to episode 477 with the original founder, Tom Beaver from the UK, or the founders of BeaverFit USA, Alex Rudhouse and Mike Taylor, on episode 457. This episode is sponsored by 511, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why don't I have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. 
So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you will get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 511, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 487 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show, John Hancock. Now, John is a Marine veteran who worked not only in the regular Marine unit, but then found himself working in the human intelligence side and is the subject of a brand new documentary, Bastards Road. So we discuss a host of topics from his early life, his journey into the military, his transition out, PTSD, and so many more areas. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment and go to whichever app you listen to this on. Hit subscribe, leave feedback. I love reading your feedback. And most importantly, leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 500 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help pay it forward and share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you, John Hancock. Enjoy. John, I want to start by saying thank you so much for coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Yeah, brother. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, man. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it should be a, a great conversation. I just watched the film last night and was absolutely blown away. My wife was blubbering next to me. So uh, I'm looking forward to hearing hearing your story. Yeah, brother. I don't, I don't know too many people that get through that movie without tears. <laughs> they shouldn't. <laughs> um, so very first question, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? Right now I'm in uh, Sierra Vista, Arizona, so it's about a mile away from the Mexico border. So I'm a, I'm a government contractor and I work down here. Ah, okay. That's way down there then. But yeah, I live in Phoenix, so I, uh, I commute down here for the week and then I stay here and then I go back to Phoenix and uh, see the wife for the weekends. Right. Well, you know what? So let's go on a complete tangent before we even get into your story then, because it's something that I talk about a lot. Um, what are you observing there? And I don't mean politically or anything like that. For me... My whole perspective of this is that one of the reasons that we're seeing a lot of people coming into the U.S. is because of the violence that we're seeing at the border, which to me, I think you know, the, the prohibition of drugs is definitely creating a lot of crime, a lot of power in the, the underworld. Through your lens, without me loading that question at all, what are you seeing? So, uh, it, and this is different, and, and I, I like to talk about this with a lot of different people, especially people that don't live in border states. Uh, because they just don't have any real clue of what's going on down here. Uh, it is it is pretty bad. Uh, and it is the Border Patrol are constantly out uh, all over the place. I'm a mile from the border, mile and a half from the border. So there are constantly people running across. Uh, you run into people. If you go hiking out here, you run into a million people out here that shouldn't be here or they're you know coming across illegally. Uh, and it, it, it gets pretty sketchy down here sometimes. And the violence that's down here. Uh, are things that uh, people in the rest of the country don't really understand uh, because they are uh, they are moving drugs, they are moving money, they are moving things across the border in these 
in huge, huge volumes. Uh, and so, and they're doing it horribly. You know, they'll, they'll, uh, the, the violence against women immigrants down here is horrible. Um, it, it's, it's not a great situation. Uh, and when, when you see, especially in this new year, starting, you know, in January, uh, you started to see uh, a lot of these different border patrol checkpoints closing down. Uh, and that, that got everybody very worried because now there's really no presence down there and it's really more mobile than anything else. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's living in a border state and, and, and working down along the border is, uh, it definitely gives you a new perspective on exactly what is happening, uh, versus the rest of the country that just kind of gets it on the news. And then they get a, they get a real watered down version of it. Yeah. And I think it's important that we hear perspectives from people like yourself. And I think for me, yeah, I'm an immigrant. I came from England. You know, right. we don't have this problem on the Canadian border. We don't have Canadians right. just, you know, running through the trees, you know, all day, every day. Um, right. so, you know, for my very, again, you know, 10,000 foot view, the, the real question is, well, why the hell are these women, they're these, excuse me, why the hell are these people? all flooding into this country and you know is are there areas of the way that you know, life is in mexico that could be improved and i'm not saying it's our responsibility per se but one thing we can definitely do is stop being users of illicit drugs and stop being consumers and that would definitely take away some of the power yeah absolutely it would and you know that the cartel has a real good grip on uh, on the illegal drug market and you know once once marijuana became uh, legalized in so many portions of the u.s uh, that the cartel really took a blow. Uh, that took a huge hit for them. And uh, so they had to figure out how to make more money uh, and, you know, kind of, I guess, offset that cost that they now had. Uh, and so the uh, the hyper, uh, I guess, infusal of, of all these new drugs and, and the resurgence of fentanyl into into America, um, those those started those things started to happen even more. Uh, and so you, you continue to watch that happen and continue to watch that to rise. Uh, yeah, I mean, one of the biggest things you could do is stop, you know, illicit drug use. Um, but uh, they prey on the addiction of people and, and those things are addictive. And we see that constantly. Yeah. Well, an interesting perspective I had and people listening to this podcast have heard me flog this like a dead horse. But, you know, I think it's an important thing. Um, my family, some of my family moved to Portugal and they decriminalize addiction, not selling, not smuggling. They just stop putting addicts in prisons, basically. Right. And put the power in the medical community. So the users, when they use, went to a safe use facility, were watched by, you know, medical personnel, were given medical grade fentanyl so they wouldn't overdose. Um, and, you know, they saw an incredible improvement. And the other side of the, the conversation is we're going to get into, you know, there's a lot of veterans that have found huge success from psilocybin and, you know, ibogaine and some of these things. And the men and women that fought and died for this country, you know, some, some of the people that come home with, with PTSD or TBI have to go overseas to get the treatment for the in mental injuries that they got protecting this nation. So there are so many, to me, so many areas that we would just nothing but improve if we put the power back into the medical community versus the underworld. Yeah, you're not wrong. And I really, uh, you know, when Portugal uh, decriminalized, uh, I guess, all drugs and addiction, right, years ago, when they started that process, uh, I was actually really scared uh, in the beginning, you know, because then everybody's going to everybody's going to use it. It's you, Portugal's going to go downhill. And you didn't see that. And then actually now uh, Oregon has actually kind of modeled off of that. 
uh, and they're running that type of model and they're really putting a lot of power back into the mental health and the health communities uh, to try to help uh, addiction. Now, I don't know exactly where I stand on addiction. I know that once once you're hooked, you're hooked, but you made the choice to get hooked in that point, I think. And I'm not exactly sure if I even want to publicly say that that way, because I think that's a little harsh. Um, but I, I have a, I have a very hard time with addiction uh, and with understanding it and probably because I don't know enough about it. Um, I know what I've experienced in my own world uh, just through, um, you know, copious amounts of alcohol. And, and if you have to label it alcoholism, that's fine. But uh, using that as a coping mechanism, I can actually empathize with uh, with an addict on that uh, on that realm, uh, because I did use that for so long as the coping mechanism. Uh, so, you know, seeing some of these states kind of, uh, give power back to the addict, uh, and give power back to the health community, I think is, a, I think it's a positive move. Yeah. And I do. And if you ever want to really, really kind of unwrap the whole addiction element, there's a book called chasing the scream by Johan okay. Hari. Actually, I can send you, I did an interview with him. I could send you that. Um, Incredible because you really, yeah. you look at the very beginning of prohibition. You look, he, he really explains, you know, addiction is a mental health issue rather than, you know, the hook. And he actually disproves right. some of the, the, the hook elements with, with things like Rat Park and some things that he talks about. So yeah, very, very interesting. But your perspective is invaluable. I mean, the men and women at the borders right now that we're, we're talking about is progressive change that will take, you know, several years. Well, right, right now we have people, some very, very bad people trying to get across our border. And, you know, I think we have to have a, a huge amount of respect for the people that are protecting it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, then on your story now, after our 10 minute tangent, Don't worry. <laughs> um, tell me where you were born and then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Sure. So I was born in Honolulu, Hawaii back in uh, 83 in March. And uh, my dad was a Navy or I was a Navy brat. So my dad was a Navy man. He was a commander of a submarine. Uh, his first sub was the uh, uh, Tautog. And then he went on to the Von Steuben. Uh, so I'd, I'd grown up kind of, you know, living around submarines. And so we moved all over the world. We ended up in England for a while. I lived in Rickmansworth uh, right outside of London. So I went to school there for quite a few years and then came back to the States, uh, moved around. And then I call Maryland my home because uh, I, we did, I did all four years of high school there um, and then graduated. But I have a younger brother uh, who's two and a half years younger than me. His name's Kyle. Uh, so it was two boys and then mom kind of, you know, taking the helm as dad is constantly deployed uh, for most of my formative years, man. I mean, he was constantly gone. Uh, there were quite a few different times where dad would have like, you know, a 300 day deployment at sea. And, you know, you just you don't see him for that year. Uh, it was it was insane. And so, mom, you know, I grew up as kind of a mama's boy because, uh, you know, I mean, mom's the only one around. Uh, and then when dad comes home, he's trying to kind of be the authoritative figure. But, you know, mom's had to do it for so long. We kind of look to her. Uh, and so that was actually something that, you know, we talk about later on uh, for people that are coming home from deployments. Uh, it's like, hey, man, if you're married uh, and you got kids, like mom's had to take care of a lot of this for, for so long that, you know, you, you know, you might not have uh, you might not have the response or, or the bond you, you thought you might have because mom's been doing this day in and day out and you've been away and yeah, you've been away for a, for the right purpose. 
Uh, but you know, don't get mad when your kid, you know, goes to mom instead of you type stuff. And that's the kind of thing that we, I think we, as kids would do is we would, uh, we would look to mom for the guidance versus dad. Cause dad wasn't around a lot, not to say he didn't love me, but the man is a submariner. Um, that's a, that's a very small community, uh, of people that are constantly deployed. They're constantly underwater. Uh, they're constantly scanning the oceans, man. And it's, it's a neat lifestyle, but it is lonely. Uh, and so we didn't have dad for many years growing up. And then, you know, I got into high school and dad started teaching at the Academy. Uh, and you know, I had, I had known I wanted to be a Marine for years, uh, since probably being in England, I think we were in upper Ricelip in the commissary and, uh, I saw a Marine like behind me and he was in camouflage utilities and he had all this, he had like a, a jump wing and a scuba bubble and he, he was a mountain of a man. Uh, just highly intimidating. And I looked at dad and I was like, who is that? And he goes, that's a force reconnaissance Marine. They're the most badass things on the planet. And I was like, well, I want to be a Marine then. And from that day forward, it just happened. Uh, it was just the thing I wanted to have happen. And I got into high school in ninth grade in Maryland. And the first day, I think the rec- the Marine recruiters were in the cafeteria and I walked up to him. I was like, all right, I want to join. I want to join right now. How do I do this? And they're like, all right, slow down there, spark plug. Like, why don't you graduate <laughs> high school first? So I just, I became like their little gopher, man. I would just hang out with the Marines anytime they came to school. Uh, and I just wanted to be one. So the day I graduated, I think we went to Beach Week uh, for, uh, with all the people that graduated for like a week in Ocean City. I came back. And then I got on a plane and I was down at Paris Island uh, probably about a week and a half after I graduated. Mate, now what about um, athletics? As you were growing through the school age, what, what kind of sports were you playing? Oh, none, man. I was a, I was an artist, dude. Uh, and, uh, you know, I was, I was a pothead and an artist, and that's just what I was. Uh, I went out for my football team my senior year, uh, and I made it. But the whole idea behind it was I just need to go try out for the football team uh, to see where I am physically, you know, as we start heading towards boot camp. And I went and I, I passed, I made the team. And then three minutes after I made the team, I quit because I didn't want to play football. <laughs> I didn't give a shit about it. All I wanted to do was make sure that I had enough physicality in my body uh, that I wasn't going to, you know, fail out of boot camp or something. So what was boot camp like then to someone that wasn't, you know, super physically active or, or maybe not, not testing yourself mentally through sport? Yeah, it was uh, it, boot camp actually was so uh, so routine. It was hard. Uh, it was hard to pass up. Um, it was hard to get mad at it. It was hard to say it was very challenging. Of course it's challenging. It's Marine Corps boot camp. It's the longest boot camp out of any of the services We're, I mean, we roll 13 weeks. Uh, the next highest is the army. And I think they're at like 10 maybe. Um, and so the, uh, boot camp is stressful. Uh, they put you under uh, an intense amount of stress at all times, from the time your eyes are open till the time your eyes close, and then even after after you're asleep, you're still under stress. Uh, but it's just stress every day. And uh, I think I went into boot camp, Wayne, uh, right at the limit. I because I remember me being the limit, and I think it was like 196 for my weight or my height. And uh, when I graduated from boot camp, I weighed like 170. Uh, I was a toothpick, man. And I see pictures of me and I'm like, good Lord, like you were small Uh, because you're just you're running everywhere. Uh, You're getting yelled at constantly. Uh, You're constantly put into the position to uh, embrace and present uh, an amount of discipline that uh, no, no, 
no 18 year old has done yet. Uh, and then you have to do that constantly and it's day in, day out and it's just discipline and it's routine. Um, and it's just a lot of, it's a lot of running, uh, everywhere you go, it's just running. And so that's, I mean, boot camp was challenging. Uh, but I never, I never had a hard time like other people did. I, when I saw other people really struggling through boot camp, I, I always kind of wondered what that was. Uh, cause I, I didn't struggle. And I just remember hearing my dad say, you know, uh, right before I went and, th- and his words always echo through my head. And, you know, right before I went, he goes, Jonathan, a million, a million men have gone before you and become Marines. And he goes, all it is, is one foot in front of the other. And anytime I was struggling on a run, uh, or anytime I was, uh, I was just struggling, uh, with the routine. I just remember always like saying to myself, just one foot in front of the other, keep going. And that's what I did. And I, now I just do that constantly in my life. Beautiful. Well, you'd, you'd seen the, uh, this mountain of a Marine recon in the, uh, the cafeteria there. As you went through boot camp, had you aspirations for joining recon as well? Yeah. So at first I did. And uh, I tried a few different times. Uh, I tried the recon in doc in uh, SOI at School of Infantry. I passed that. Uh, and then, but then, I don't know why I passed the in doc and it was like uh, it was a three mile run. It was a it was a 500 meter swim. Uh, there was like 45 minute treading water. There was something else. But I remember remember passing it and then not being able to go anywhere or like get accepted into like into the next level, which would be at that time it was called RIP. Uh, but then it would turn into something called pre BRC, which is pre basic reconnaissance course. So I didn't end up going over to a, a recon battalion. And then when I got into uh, when I got to two four, my first unit, um, there was another recon in doc that they held in uh, Okinawa, and we were deployed there the first time for third reconnaissance battalion. So I took that in doc, and I passed that in doc as well. Uh, and then they only took they only took like two or three guys, and they were the highest level PTers. So yeah, I passed, uh, but I didn't pass at such a high level that it made me competitive for the other guys. Uh, and then so I. Uh, after that, I kind of just got a little disenfranchised with the process and was like, okay, well, I guess I'm not going to end up going that route. Uh, and then after the battle of Ramadi, I found, uh, I found uh, a different route, uh, that was very appealing to me, uh, inside the counterintelligence, human intelligence world. Uh, and through that Avenue, I actually went into some of the highest tier special operations forces, uh, that we have, and I was able to operate with them uh, and support them uh, through human intelligence endeavors. And I thought that was really a badass way to do something. So that's that's kind of my route instead. Yeah, and it's it's a powerful story, and I definitely want to get into the human intelligence side in a little bit. You just touched on Ramadi. I'm thinking a lot of people listening recognize you know that conflict you know, because of uh, Jocko Willink and some of those guys and all the all the you know, men and women that are on the ground for the kind of 06, 07, but you guys were there a little bit earlier. So was that the first place that you were deployed with your unit? No, the first deployment for 2nd Battalion, 4th Marines that I was a part of was Okinawa. And that was during OIF-1, the push into Baghdad. Uh, We got stop loss, stop moved by the military. So wherever, okay, so halt everything, wherever your unit is, that's where your unit's going to stay until we figure out uh, the road to war and then, you know, completion of. And so we got stuck uh, as the only member, the only battalion out of the 5th Marine Regiment to not be <clears throat> in the first Iraq war, to be in the push to Baghdad. And we watched it from a TV screen on a ship uh, out in the South Pacific. 
uh, as we were part of Sixth Fleet. And so we uh, we stayed out in the Okinawa, South Pacific area, part of Sixth Fleet for uh, a year and we were stuck. And so we got this moniker two for no war. And uh, I mean, it stung. And then we finally are able to go back. I think we go back in July of uh, 2003, I think. Um, maybe it's even a little bit later. Uh, and we get back and all these guys are back from Baghdad. And, you know, ev- like Lance Corporals and young PFCs that just got into the Marine Corps have a combat deployment. They've got, you know, all this chest candy and they look like just damn war heroes. And we're like, oh, man. This sucks because here I am with my little national defense and I'm like, oh, I'm a Marine too. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we begged, we begged and pleaded for war. And then second time, fourth Marines got everything they begged for and then more. And we went over to Ramadi in February of 2004, uh, pushed up in, uh, still did a convoy from Kuwait all the way up into Ramadi. Uh, and uh, we ended up getting into the city in early March uh, and then from then on, uh, it was easy at, at the beginning. We thought it was going to be a cakewalk, right? And uh, our mission was something called SASO, which uh, at the time was stability and support operations. So it's, you know, going around and checking the infrastructure and okay, how's your water? Oh, you don't have any water? Let me write that down. Let's see if I can help you, uh, you know. And uh, so that's what we were doing. And then uh, the, we lost our first guy, I think, March 21st for Fox Company. It was PFC Dang. He was a driver for a truck. Uh, he got hit in the head with an RPG and then uh, and then nothing else happened for a little while. And then April 6th, the whole city just fell down around us. Uh, golf company took the brunt of that in the beginning. They lost 11 guys in, in a matter of uh, seven guys in a matter of seconds. Uh, and then it would be 11 the first day. And then Echo Company took massive hits. Uh, Fox Company didn't take a lot of those hits. Uh, we were on the east side. Uh, sorry, on the west side of Ramadi. Uh, and the and in the snake pit and golf company and uh, echo company were on the east side uh, at the combat outpost. And so they were uh, they had a different area. And uh, so but the interesting thing about, you know, my story and my squad Raider 3-2 for Fox Company, we were in every engagement with the rest of them. It just so happened that we were downtown and that that morning um, golf company, uh, a squad from golf company had been pinned down. Uh, we were the only maneuver element in the area that could get to them. And so we just said, screw it, we're going. Uh, and we broke orders from our, uh, from our captain that said, no, you'll stay in your AOR. And we said, no, nope, we're not doing that. Marines are hurt and they're, they're struggling and they're, they're pinned down and we need to go help them. Uh, and so that's really kind of how we got into the fight. But, and that's a, that's a huge thing to also know from the battle of Ramadi is because there are two of them, right? And there's the 2006 one that everyone knows about because, you know, you had two or three battalions of Marines, you had an army unit, you had a SEAL team or two, and you had a reconnaissance unit as well. So it was saturated. But when it was just us, it was second time, fourth Marines, uh, alone and unafraid, you basically figure uh, our battalion is about 1500 people. Now we were understaffed in our battalion. So when you look at our battalion, we probably had about 11 or 1200. Uh, and then that really kind of nets out to only really about 900 warfighters. The rest of them are in supporting roles or leadership. Uh, and so, you know, 900 guys to defend an entire city of, you know, a million plus or something. It, I mean, it got, it got hairy real quick. Uh, and so we ended up losing the most amount of guys out of the entire rock war for any, any unit. 
Uh, and we ended up losing 34 men. It was 33 Marines, one Naval Service Corpsman. And then our, uh, our casualties, uh, our, our wounded in action rate was uh, total and in, in combined with uh, the killed in action rate is something like 26%. Uh, one in four of us was coming home uh, either wounded or in a body bag. Well, I mean, that's, that's horrendous. And there's, there's a question that I like to ask anyone who's deployed, because I think it's so important for us to hear your perspectives. And obviously, we're going to go deeper into this. But um, when we, the civilians, get, uh, you know, the, the portrait of war, it's usually very polarizing. One side will be like, oh, you know, kill them all, let God sort them out. The other side will be they're a bunch of baby killers, you know. And the reality is you've got these men and women, children, you know, we've asked to go and fight for our country. Um, and, you know, we need to hear those voices. So I like to ask a kind of, you know, a double-sided question. The first thing, regardless of the politics that sent you over there, was there a moment when you got there where you witnessed some of the atrocities firsthand that, that not so much justify, but just kind of gave you that firsthand experience like regardless of, of all the bullshit back home you know this is something these are some horrible people that we have to take care of oh absolutely and uh I, the and you know i'm gonna be really honest about it but the amount of child rape and the amount of uh uh violence towards children and women was uh was astounding and absolutely disgusting and i saw it on a daily basis and uh it really kind of <sighs> kind of just cauterized the idea that uh, what you're doing over here has to help these people. And, you know, regardless of the politics, and I never, I never get into the politics of war. I get into what I, uh, what I was doing for the people I was there for. And then for my brothers Uh, and that was it. And it's, you know, none of this, none of that shit matters. And in, in a firefight, I'm not thinking about mom, dad, and some girlfriend back home. I'm worried about the guy to my left and my right. And I know that they're worried about me and nothing else. Uh, and that's that's how you that's how you maneuver through combat is uh, is to focus highly on the men around you uh, and not worry about anything else. But then to see those atrocities, uh, it makes killing a little easier. Yeah, well, exactly. I think that's a very important perspective for us to hear. Now, conversely, another kind of I think misnomer is that we're at war with Iraq. Obviously, the reality is there are some horrible people in the country of Iraq that are terrorizing their own people and we're going in there to try and neutralize that threat. So what about moments of humanity, you know, moments of compassion and kindness amongst that war zone? Uh, many, uh, many, and, and so many, to, too many to list. Uh, but I can tell you there was one day I was in, we had gotten ambushed. It was way later. I think it was in, uh, in middle of August of 04. My team had gotten ambushed. Uh, they opened up on us with a 12.7 millimeter Dushka. So it's a massive anti-air weapon. Uh, nobody was hurt, which is crazy. My radio operator was shot in the face and lived. Uh, and then at some point I had almost gone down. Like I, it was, it was 143 degrees that day. Uh, I was, I was definitely going down as a heat casualty. We had, we had ran out of water like 12 hours prior. We're on our last leg. We're trying to get back to the base. You know, the base is only 300 meters away. And here we are getting ambushed in this alley. Uh, we make it out. And then I, come under just this everything goes tunnel vision and starts getting black and i'm realizing like i'm going down as a heat casualty and this guy this iraqi dude comes out of nowhere with a pitcher of cold water and just starts handing me cold water like in the middle of, i've just shot up your entire 
street, right? I'm like, there's bombs going off, grenades are flying, like we're in the middle of a gunfight and this guy walks through bullets to hand me water because he sees I'm struggling. Uh, and that, you know, I'll always remember that. I thought that was really cool. But but there are many moments of uh, pristine humanity uh, inside a war zone, which also make you, which also embolden you to continue to help uh, because it, uh, you realize that not everyone's bad. Yeah, well, exactly. I think it's so important. And even the the Marcus Luttrell story, A Lone Survivor, when you read the book, I don't think the movie did the, this part justice, really, but the, the courage of that village that harbored him for oh, so yeah. long and, and the danger they put themselves in and the beatings they endured to protect him yeah. was incredible you know and that's again the one side of that story we don't we don't get told that the incredible heroism of the afghanis or the iraqis um you right. know, amongst our men and women that are fighting there yeah absolutely and those iraqi forces man and i've worked with them a lot the uh, different ones the army the police all of them there are certain people inside them that absolutely yes there's certain bad people there right and they they deep seed into that to you know subvert whatever these guys are trying to do but there are true patriots around the world that just want to see their country thrive and survive uh and i got to work with a lot of those guys uh and women too and it was it was amazing absolutely well i'm looking just at my notes for a second so when when I watched the film, um, and you mentioned, you know, all the, the people that you lost there, it seemed like losing Caleb Powers was, was very, very impressionable to you. So was that in the Battle of Ramadi that that happened or was it a later deployment? It, no, it was, it was in the same deployment, but it was later. So what you, what we consider the Battle of Ramadi is really only a four or five day period. It's April 6th to April 10th. But the rest of that time, it was no it was no cakewalk either. Uh, after April 10th, uh, we had really we had taken a black eye uh, after the six. We had taken a black eye and then we just came back in force and said, OK, you guys want to fight. We're going to fight. Uh, and then by the 10th, you know, we're out on megaphones begging for these people to come out and fight us because uh, they didn't want to go toe to toe with us. Uh, you know, they they enjoy the sneak attacks and the ambush style because that's a war of attrition. They don't want to come. They don't want to go toe to toe with a Marine battalion. Uh, we win every time. Uh, and so they didn't want to do that. And then after that, it was constantly uh, it was constantly sniper fire or mortars and constant firefights every week. You know, a different team would get in a firefight. Uh, I I can log more more days that I didn't get engaged than I did. Uh, which is interesting because I remember more days where, you know, there, there, there were, or I remember less days uh, that there were, you know, nothing going on or it was kind of an easy day. Uh, so that, but Caleb uh, was killed in August uh, and right before, uh, about two and a half, three weeks before we were uh, geared up to come home. And uh, he was shot by a sniper. And that, uh, that really hit me hard. Uh, one, because I really loved Caleb a lot. And then uh, two, because, Directly after that, I assumed his position uh, on top of that uh, seven story where inevitably we would get blown up the next day uh, sitting on top of, you know, a thousand pounds of a homemade explosives. Uh, and so we uh, that that's a that's a jarring experience for me. Uh, but it's it's a it's a memory that I hold dear and, and want to continue to speak his name. Well, in that in the film, you, know, you talk about that. What? What was that like mentally going to the exact position where firstly you lost a friend, but secondly, you knew the sniper was probably, you know, there's a high like there. likelihood they were going to be able to take you out in the same spot too. Yeah. I, uh, well, I had to go up and, and clean up after Caleb and, uh, that was very tough and we had to move, we had to move his body and, uh, and then Randy and I had to sit up there with a, 
a dustpan and uh, and our boots and just kind of sweep all this blood up into this dustpan and uh, try and then pour water all over it, just trying to clean up the scene a little bit so you didn't have to sit amongst all this blood. And then, you know, my boys, I remember the squad, I remember some of the younger Marines that we had just picked up right before we left for Ramadi. Uh, I remember the look in their eyes that they all, you know, it they had very much come to terms with now, okay, I, I'll die today. And so I wanted to make sure that if anybody was going to die or they were going to take a second shot quickly, uh, I wanted to be the first one there. And so I looked at uh, another team leader. I was a squad leader at that point. I looked at another team leader and said, hey, we got to sit in this position, man. And uh, we got to show our guys that we can do this because uh, they're they're You know, I can see fear and uh, and maybe not necessarily fear, uh, but worry. And uh, and so I wanted to I wanted to quell that by showing them that I would do it first. And so I sat there for. Two and a half hours, man, with Chadwick and Jason and I just sat there and we spoke so fast because we knew we were going to die. I just wanted to get out as much shit as humanly possible. I was like, I want to hike the Appalachian Trail. This is the car I want. I messed up with this girl, like everything, just just vomiting anything that I could, uh, knowing that uh, that'd probably be the last time I told any of those stories. Now, with, as you mentioned, that that mindset. Tell me, can I unwrap that a little bit more? Because you hear that said a lot in war, um, accepting that you're already dead. Now, you know, I'm a firefighter. You know, it, it's not quite the same thing because we respond to an incident and then we get to leave again. Um, you know, uh, how did you come to that realization and what was different prior to, to post-realization? I think I think that realization came quickly, actually. That realization came right when PFC Dang was killed. So our, the first guy from Fox Company was killed back in March of 04. Uh, and I realized that it can happen to anybody. And then I was like, okay, this is no longer, you know, if it's going to happen, it's when. And so I, I, it was calming. And I remember it being calming that I was like, okay, well, I'm, I'm dead. And that's what's going to happen now. And I just accepted it and moved forward and, uh, put myself in positions that, uh, would show my guys that it was okay uh, to, you know, run through a wall of fire if you have to, uh, and to, you know, get over to that house and get to that next point and continue to move forward and continue to, you know, push towards the enemy. Uh, that realization when it comes, it is calming because you, you accept it and go, well, I'm, I'll never make it out of here. So I might as well just do everything I can for the guys that will get out of here. And that was really the process and really the thought process behind it all. And did you find performance-wise that that mindset removed hesitation? Oh, you know, in a heartbeat, in a heartbeat. Uh, you know, that you get ambushed, I'd, I'd be the first one out. I'd be jumping over the side of a seven-ton, you know, free-flowing through the air for, you know, 15, 20 feet, hitting the ground running and just immediately start shooting. Um, that, yeah, inhibitions were out the window. I had nothing left to live for except my brother's. Uh, and it was now incumbent upon me to make sure that I was doing everything in my power to get them home. Yeah, so it's very interesting, you know, perspective. Because I mean, like you said, it's it's when you see the the carelessness that almost hints at again the PTSD, you know, where where the self protection starts to diminish, but removing hesitation that seems to be that happy medium, that flow state where you're able to operate at the highest level. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, you're not wrong. <laughs> so with that, then you you touched on human intelligence. I think this is a very interesting part of your story as well. So you know. It, 
you hear again let's go back to the media you hear very polarizing things about you know interrogation and you know techniques right. you know one particular technique waterboarding was held as this you know horrendous act uh, i have no background on 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 this at all so educate us all on you know on what the roles were um and i think it's an important thing that, that you definitely hint on in in the um in the film what that does to the psyche of the interrogator themselves, someone who was a innocent high school kid and is now trying to withdraw intelligence from an enemy fire. Right, right, absolutely. Sorry, I got these things going off. I'm trying to get them to stop, but they won't. Um, so bottom line is, is the, uh, the move over into counterintelligence, human intelligence happened for me uh, during April 7th. There was an engagement this truck pulls up, this SUV pulls up, it's up armored. Uh, it's, you know, and it's, and this dude in a beard gets out and he goes, and he's got this little petite M4. And I'm like, all right, well, that's, that's gotta be a Delta guy or something. And he goes, Hey, there's a couple of people in this building. There's three guys over here and there's two over in this building. So as we're clearing these houses, I'm like, Holy shit, these numbers are like accurate. And like, how did, how did that, who was that guy? So at the end of that whole day, I ended up back at the combat outpost uh, that evening over in Gulf and Echo's AO. And this dude is sitting next to a fire barrel, smoking a cigar. And I, and I, so I told my squad, I was like, hang on guys, we'll get a ride here in a minute. I got to go find out some information real quick. So I walk over to this dude and I'm like, all right, who are you and how do I get your job? And he goes, uh, would you believe it if I said I was a Marine? I'd be like, no way. Absolutely not. And he shows me this Marine Corps ID card. And I'm like, all right, now definitely how do I get your job? <laughs> And because, uh, you know, it looks all cool and shit. And I didn't realize what it was. And he says, well, if you make it out of here, call this number, uh, tell them you're interested and they'll start the process. And if you're a fit, you're a fit and you'll make it. And so when I got home in November, uh, I was doing laundry and just by sheer happenstance, his card fell out of one of my pockets and I picked it up and was like, oh, shit, I got to call that guy. Uh, so I called this number and told him who I was, told him what I had experienced. They said, do you know what we do? And I said, no, nope, I have no idea, uh, but I want to do it. And they said, okay, well, here's some books you got to read. And here's these publications you got to read. Uh, and then you go in and then, you know, I went through this boarding process, which lasted like six months. And then I went through a school uh, out there on the East coast, which was another like two months or so, or two and a half months. And then boom, I was accredited interrogator and source handler uh, known as a counterintelligence, human intelligence specialist with the MOS 0211 in the Marine Corps. Uh, and so I graduated in early 05 and then started deploying. Uh, I immediately went in my first deployment out. I supported first recon. Uh, I supported uh, both Bravo and Charlie company, but more so Charlie uh, for a six month deployment in and around Fallujah uh, and the Amaria area. And so uh, I was learning very quickly on the fly that interrogations don't look the same as they do inside a schoolhouse environment. Uh, and not that you're violent, uh, or that you're hurting people because that's not a thing, uh, but you're using and manipulating other people to get what you want. And you're manipulating story and you're manipulating information to get them to open up to you. And once, and I went, I think I went through like 50 interrogations before I ever had the first guy break. And the, you know, the 50 before it, I'm like, I can't get this guy to tell me his damn name. Uh, and, you know, it, it was frustrating and I was young and I was trying and I, it wasn't working out. Uh, and my team chief was like, just keep going. Don't worry about it. It'll happen. And when it happens, you'll never not break a guy again. And then sure as shit, it was like, I think it was like 50 interrogations in, you know, and we're, you're, we're on site somewhere. We've kicked down a door. I'm in the middle of doing something. This guy just starts singing to me. And I'm like, whoa. 
oh shit, this is working. Like, oh, I've, and I felt so amazing. Uh, and then, you know, I constantly deployed uh, in different, uh, in different capacities uh, throughout the special operations community to uh, help them uh, with their, uh, you know, their, what they see uh, as human intelligence and, you know, to derive new targets and that kind of stuff. And so it was very, uh, it was very jarring again uh, after I got out to see the things that I had done, not necessarily that I, uh, that I regretted anything that I did, but that uh, I could see the amount of manipulation uh, and how that carried forward into uh, into my personal life, and how I was now using some of those systems, uh, some of those techniques and things to try to manipulate the people around me uh, to get either what I wanted or to make them believe what I wanted them to believe. Uh, and it doesn't work the same way because they're not under duress like they are in you know when you're busting down a dude's house and they're shooting at you. It's like okay, well I I know I'm caught and I know I'm guilty, you know, but not not your, your ex or, you know, whatever your wife or whatever it is. So you're um, using, using those things later on actually became a hindrance for me uh, in, in personal growth. Now, total tangent. What about when you came back, obviously learning techniques, you know, with, with interrogation, did you ever have any aha moments when you watched the news, for example, and, and see some of the, I mean, certainly now, these last couple of years, the, the kind of fear mongering and, and that, that kind of uh, almost psychology that we see through the television. Yeah. And I, it, uh, fortunately for me, I'm, I'm able to see I don't watch the news anymore. I haven't watched the news in years. Uh, I haven't watched any of it. it. It doesn't excite me. I understand what they're doing. Uh, and on all sides, on every single side, I don't care if it's left, right in the middle or what. Uh, everyone is manipulating things. Uh, to tell a story, to gain viewership, to hold on to their viewership. Well, the only way to hold on to viewership is to polarize uh, and create these divisive mentalities so that uh, you keep your little fiefdom over here and it works. Uh, and, and so I see it and I don't like it. And so I don't, I don't uh, engage with it uh, because it is, uh, it is uh, mass manipulation uh, on a scale that I never thought humans would allow themselves to uh, be victim to, uh, again, especially after maybe like the Holocaust or something. Uh, but then to see it, uh, to see it just so clearly evidence that they are manipulated and that you can be manipulated. Uh, you've got a, you know, you got a Google machine in front of you in your hand all the time. Uh, it's constantly telling you what to think, what to feel. Uh, it, it, I see it. And it, uh, there's, a, there's probably a heavy amount of psychology that goes into uh, news reporting and posting and the way that they post. Uh, I imagine they probably got a doctor somewhere going, oh, well, if you want to do this, do this. Um, and that it could be happening. So I don't, I don't watch any of it. I don't engage with it. Uh, you know, and I've been on a boatload of different news programs uh, for this, especially for this walk and then for this film. Uh, where every single one of them attempts to make some sort of zinger or curveball to uh, to get their point across or whatever. And I don't engage with it. Uh, I don't allow them to win that uh, because this it's not what this is about. This film is not about uh, polarizing or dividing the nation. This film is about uh, showing people what a warfighter does and, and experiences when he comes home. And that is all it is. And the only way I could figure out how to do that was be hyper apolitical and just tell this story from my gut 
Yeah, and that's the problem. Is that, I mean, I turned my TV off ten years ago now. Disconnect. We just yeah. have Netflix and all that, so we choose what we want to watch, like Bastards right. Road, for example. Um, and you know, that's the way that we get our information. We choose to to look for it, and the common denominator is, I think, the middle. 85, 90% of, of people in this country are normal. <laughs> but we yeah. have this sound piece for the extreme, you know, either side. And sadly, that's what people get, get, you know, bombarded with if they don't choose their media carefully. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I chose to swear it all off. <laughs> So you touched on this before with your with your dad. Um, one of the areas that I feel is is very very um, important to discuss is transition out. Whether it's trans- transition out of the military or the first responder professions, um, not only because we what we've seen and done, but also I think a lot of us then identify. I'm a marine. I'm a firefighter. And if you don't have that next kind of chapter already mapped out it can be a, a real struggle for a lot of people so yeah. you 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 not only saw a hell of a lot of combat in ramadi and then you know the deployments after that you had the intelligence piece as well what made you decide to to transition out and then tell me how that initial transition was for you i was sitting in uganda in 2007 up in a little town called gulu and i was up there for quite a while uh and uh, I had a colonel had come by my house and and had said, have you heard about the post 9-11 GI Bill yet? And I was like, no, and I had two more years on this contract at least. Uh, I wasn't getting out till the end of September of 09 at this point. And uh, I just, I knew that I wanted to go to college. I remember always thinking about it as I was growing up through the Marine Corps that I wanted to go to college at some point. I really, I desired to sit in a building and learn. Uh, and so I wanted to do that. And then once this post 9-11 GI Bill came out and, and it turned out that they're going to pay your full freight for college, they're going to pay you this awesome living stipend, uh, they'll buy all your books. And I was like, well, that's it then. I'll just get out and go to college. And that was that was the plan. And so I had gone back over. I deployed a few more times. And then I was on my last deployment deciding that I was going to be done uh, I had gotten accepted to the University of Maryland uh, and I was going to double major in Arabic and Russian. I got accepted and school started. I'm still in Iraq and I, I'm two weeks late to school uh, because I'm like, I'm shoring up my final combat operations. And then, you know, two weeks later, I'm sitting in a class I'm already two weeks late for. Uh, and there's all these college kids around and, and they've got all these opinions about war and everything. And and none of it makes any sense because they don't have any context. They have zero experience. Um, they're just, you know, just spouting off at the mouth like 18 year olds do. Uh, and so I was immediately I was uh, I became very combative with all students and uh, very argumentative. Uh, I wouldn't allow people to talk about things that they had no um, no knowledge of. Uh, and then, of course, these professors were like, hey, that's wrong. You got to let these kids do this. And I'm like, no, I don't. Uh, so I never really had a good college experience uh, the first time around. And because of all that derision and anonymity and the and then seeing uh, just how you're treated as a combat veteran by kids who have no idea where that comes from, uh, I, I started not going to class. And I was like, screw it. I don't need to be in this class, uh, but I need this money. Uh, and I like drinking. Uh, so I might as well still kind of show up every now and again. But then I just started going to the bars more and more. And I just started using alcohol to kind of numb uh, my surroundings and to uh, kind of get through the daily rigmarole of, of you know, whatever college student is going to say, whatever. Because, you know, at one point there's some banner strewn across the entire mall of the University of Maryland that says, like, get the fuck out of Afghanistan. And I'm like, 
you guys have no idea what's going on. Um, and so I just, I, I started quitting right there and I was, I was quitting uh, school and I was just using the GI bill to fund my uh, very expensive bar bills. And that's what I was doing. And then, you know, there's the first DUI. And then after the first one, there's the second one, almost a year to the day of the first one. And then after that followed in short order, cause I still don't understand this, but the cop didn't take me to jail. I was on probation for the first DUI still. Uh, he was, I think he took pity on me. He understood I was in the military. At some point I was riding in his car. He told me I was uh, in the Marine Corps. I, he, I told him I was in the Marine Corps. He had, I guess he was going out for the SWAT team at some point. Um, and he just, he, he booked me and then they lost the paperwork for a few days uh, and they drove me home. And then I didn't hear anything for you know weeks, but by that point I had already, uh, they dropped me off at home and then I walked in and, just started emptying pills into my stomach and was like, here we go, man. Like you've already, you've disgraced your, your family name. You've disgraced the Marine Corps. You're not a good dad. You're not a good father. Like it's time to go. And as I was doing that, I was, I was feeling it. I was feeling these pills um, start to cramp my stomach. And I was like, oh, it's happening. Like I'm, I'm dying. And I didn't know what to do with that. And so I was, I became very scared that I had made the mistake. I was like, I didn't mean to do any of this. So I got in this Audi that I had bought from all this deployment money. Uh, so I got in this Audi S4 after being drunk and pulled over in it 400 meters from my house. I got back in that car and I drove to the VA hospital uh, from College Park, Maryland to the Baltimore VA hospital. It was about a 45 minute trip. I made it in about 17 minutes uh, and I was cooking and I got to the uh, I got to the emergency room doors, left my car in the emergency room stall, uh, walked in, told them what I had done. Immediately they whisked me back and I'm you know, there's tubes and nodes and stomach pumpings, and now you're handcuffed to a bed and uh, my parents show up and I'm at rock bottom, man. And I go to the, uh, I go to the, the sixth floor to the psych ward for like five days. Uh, and I'm like being monitored and I'm doing puzzles and I'm like coloring books and all this shit. And uh, finally I, I was, it was like one of my last days, it was like either the last day or the day before the last day. And uh, I, I saw this guy on the news. Uh, he was shoring up this cross-country walk he had done at the MNT Bank Stadium in Baltimore. And he was ending at the halftime of the Army-Navy game. And this dude was an Army. Uh, he was an Army officer and had deployed a couple of times. And he was walking one kilometer for each person who had been killed in Iraq or Afghanistan since the 01 kickoff. And like he had ended up doing like 4,443 miles or something. And I was like, man, that's it. I got to do that. I have to go. I have to get out and I have to go visit with my guys. I got to see how they're doing. I got to go visit with the Gold Star families. When I got out, I didn't know how to do that because I'm 308 pounds. I'd been eating and drinking my feelings for years. Uh, and so I got on a mountain bike and I rode a mountain bike for 10 months, man. And I went from 308 to 198 pounds. And I said, okay, now I can go walk across the country. And so September 11th, 2015, you know, 1.15 in the morning, there's no significance for that time. I was just super excited to go. Uh, I just left my house, sold everything I owned, put my ruck on and said, all right, I'm going to start visiting my boys. The interesting thing here is that I had this crazy um, epiphany a few weeks ago and I was doing an interview and I don't remember who I was doing an interview with, but I had this epiphany and it was that this walk was really a penance walk in the beginning and that I had degraded myself so far from being a Marine. I was reaching out to my brothers to tell them sorry and to apologize for what I had done uh, and then to leave you uh, and that I didn't want to do that. And so I, 
I had to begin walking to them to tell them what I had done. And over the course of time, this walk started morphing into helping others uh, realize that it's, it's not too late and, you know, you can come back from anything and then, you know, helping our gold star families uh, grieve, but grieve properly with the men that served with their sons uh, and to experience those hardships together and create this massive community that we always know is out there, but it's very hard to actually see it. And so I wanted to give them that. And, you know, this walk has done so many different things for so many different people and so many different things for me. Uh, I constantly learn uh, more about myself from this walk and, and constantly learn more about my mental state during and after. Yeah, well, I mean, there's so many powerful elements to that story. Um, but the first one I want to go way back to when you transitioned out, I had, uh, you may have even heard of him, uh, Major Jim Capers, who was a Marine mm-hmm. Recon legend um, in Vietnam. And oh, yeah. uh, I had a couple of Vietnam vets on here. And their experience coming home was, I mean, fucking awful. No, no other way to yeah. describe it. It was absolutely disgraceful. And yeah, that's a, that's definitely an era that I think really struggles with mental health. I think a lot of the suicides that we hear about now are Vietnam vets who are now retiring from their civilian jobs and right. now are at home and you know really getting to you know think on those things. What was your what was the preparation like for you for that transition? Because similarly, I can imagine literally being in in Iraq one day and a few days later being in the classroom um, with you know naysayers basically that. That must have been kind of similar to that Vietnam experience for some of those men and women. It, it was, but it, it, uh, it, it wasn't nearly as difficult as the Vietnam guys had. It, not nearly. Um, you know, uh, the, the, entire, the entire American society shit on those guys. Uh, and it, it, it can't ever happen again. And so I think we went over, you know, all the way to the other side. And now we're like, thank you for your service, for everything. You're all heroes. And, um, and that's not necessarily the case either. Uh, And so you can't, you know, that was a knee jerk reaction. But uh, my transition from the Marine Corps was very quick. And, you know, I think I, I, I sat in a class where they say, okay, when you get out, you can be a truck driver, you'd be a cop, you'd be a firefighter. And I'm like, well, I mean, those are cool jobs, but like, isn't there something else? Like all this other stuff, doesn't that, doesn't that translate to like job skills somewhere else too? Um, And, you know, maybe it did. Uh, but it, it definitely wasn't apparent to me and it wasn't provided in that in that way uh, to any of us getting out at that time. Uh, so they've since gotten a little bit better, but still the transition period is is not nearly as robust as it should be uh, for any service member getting out, regardless of combat experience. Uh, but the transition uh, never fully happened until after the walk. Um, and I actually almost and I'll kind of give this to you this way. The walk was uh, my second chance at coming home from a deployment. And so I, I left and experienced the world again the way I wanted to through my eyes, through instead of combat this time, it's through walking. Uh, and then, you know, I have time to think because I've got 5,807 miles to think, uh, which took me one year, three months and a day. And all I was doing was constantly reliving memories uh, that were very troublesome for me and things that were so difficult and would leave me in a, just a sobbing puddle. And I was accessing them through physicality, through an arduous amount of physical endurance every day. Uh, you know, 30 miles a day with 70 pounds on your back, man, that one, it takes the whole day. And two, you, I mean, you're just constantly in your own head. When I'm not visiting with a brother or a Gold Star family, I'm literally in my own head thinking about all these memories. And they started to align themselves again. And I started to realize that I could access all these memories 
without having them be so debilitating. But I had to go through that experience of almost cognitive behavioral therapy, if you will, while being ambulatory um, and using that walking motion to continue to, you know, beat up those traumatic memories so that they weren't so traumatic anymore and that I could access them Uh, because I'll always have the memories, but it's the way in which I access them. uh, That was the problem. And so I was able to rebuild myself and redo uh, the transition that I failed at the first time around in 09 when I got out and then to redo it. And then, you know, Let's, you know, let's finish up the walk at the Fifth Marines War Memorial on December 12th of 2016. And now I'm coming back home from this deployment. Right. And now I've got it. I got to get it right. And so I decided to go back to school because I didn't want old me to get the best of me. So I went back to I got accepted to Thunderbird School of Global Management and which is I didn't know that at the time. Number one business school in the nation. And I'm like, oh, all right, I guess I'm going there. Uh, went there in uh, August 17th of, of uh, 2017. And then uh, I graduated December 17th of 2019. And uh, it was just, it was awesome because I had not let old me get the best of me. And I, I moved through this degree program. I got it done. I moved back into the world of, um, of training and helping students uh, inside the military, but not having to go and deploy again. Uh, and so I was able to, you know, become a government contractor and impart the wisdom, uh, and the stories that I've learned over the years that helped me or hindered me, but I was able to, to give that to, uh, to a new group or a new generation, uh, of potential warfighters. And that is how I started to really rebuild myself. And then I knew that I had to, I knew that I had to save as many veterans as I could. And the only way I could do it was by telling my story very honestly. And that that also kind of snowballed into this, the forming of my nonprofit, which is called Bastards Road Project. And so I take veterans on these very long, long distance hikes through the national park systems. We've got one coming up in early August out there in Zion and in, in Southern Utah. Uh, so I'm super excited about it. But our tagline is walk long distances, figure some shit out because that's all that's all I did. And that's all I wanted to show guys was that you can move. You're still physically and emotionally capable of doing very hard things. And I wanted to prove that to veterans uh, that they're not some lost cause and that this helped me. And I know it won't help everybody, but I want to show you what helped me. Uh, and then, you know, building these small little networks. Uh, of veterans who have experienced something together now as, you know, a long distance hike uh, and they've bonded now. Uh, I've, I've now given them a support network and I'm just trying to do that to the best of my ability. Well, I think another very powerful thing that you said, and also, you know, you talk about in the film, um, one of the most misunderstood elements, I think, of people who are, you know, true crisis that are, that are literally about to take their own life. I've had people on here that, that did, you know, and they survived. They, they survived the bridge or the, the gunshot. Um, but it's the same damn common denominator every time. The the outside looking in go, oh, the, you know, suicide is so cowardly. How could they do it? They're leaving that pain with their family. And, you know, you hear people like, hey, if you hear this, you know, don't, you know, your family loves you, don't do it. And as I've become educated myself through hearing, you know, hundreds of stories now, I realize that that's, not going to resonate because just like you spoke about 
these men and women at that point, their brain is so miswired that they truly believe that they're a burden. So that suicide is a selfless act. Right. Is, is, is that how you felt at that point? Like the world would be better without you? So it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to leave my family with all the pain. It's like, I'm going to take the pain away from right. my family. No, and that's exactly what I was. I was going to take, I'm going to take the pain, the disappointment, uh, and I'm going to take all of that away from them and they'll never have to feel that again. And that is so clouded because it's not what is going to happen. But I couldn't, you can't tell anybody that. Uh, not at that point, because at that point, I believed every single person that had ever met me or ever said, I love you was better off without me. Yeah. Well, the analogy that I, I use sometimes is, you know, if you and I with healthy mind, with good sleep and, you know, after post mental health counseling, went onto the top of a tall building and went near the edge, you'd feel that invisible hand pushing you away. Like, what, what are right. you doing? Get back. And, you know, I think when the, these men and women, whether it's TBI or sleep deprivation or, you know, ele other elements of PTS or PTSD, that hand shifts around. And now mm -hmm. it's behind you, pushing you like this is a good idea. And yeah. that's just it. So understanding in yourself, I think that if you if you get to the point where your brain is telling you you are a burden and the world's better, that's the biggest red flag. Not, oh, don't think, you know, think about your kids and all that stuff, because right. it doesn't seem to resonate. Because if you say that to someone in crisis who's in that mindset, they're right. like, I am thinking about that, kids. That's what, you know, that's right. why I'm going to shoot myself. Right. Absolutely. And I've, you know, and, and I'm never going to tell you that, uh, that I'm a hundred percent never going to feel those feelings again, because I still, and you know, a couple of weeks ago, I actually felt some of that ideation a little bit like creeping its ugly head out. And I had to figure out where it was coming from and why it was coming out again and what that was. And I had to go attack that. Uh, and, and, you know, I'm standing, I was hiking a couple of weeks or a couple of months ago. It's way too hot in Phoenix to hike now. Um, but I was hiking and I went up, uh, I took a bunch of veterans up uh, Flatiron, uh, which is one of the most difficult hikes in Arizona. I mean, you're exchanging 4,000 feet of elevation inside like a mile and a half. I mean, it's insane. You're basically rock climbing. Uh, and when you get to the top, you get to this gorgeous, uh, this gorgeous butte that just juts out of this mountain in the superstitions. And it's called Flatiron. And you can stand right on the edge and you look down, you know, 3,000 feet or whatnot. And... I got towards the edge and I looked down and I was like, wow, that is not what I was expecting to feel. And like, it was like a hand was pushing me back and it was like, what are you doing? Like, knock that shit off. That, that thought is no longer in your head. Where is that coming from? And I had to realize that it was coming from uh, mismanaging, uh, you know, relationships or like, you know, having stress and trying to figure out how to, uh, how to be everything for everyone all the time. Uh, I was, I was starting to feel those things again, because, you know, once you throw yourself out there and you make a film like this, um, people start leaning on you. And if you're not strong enough, uh, then you can crumble too. And I had to realize that I am strong enough, but in order to do so, I also have to take those steps for myself to continue to like, keep me healthy, uh, so that I can be there for other people in their trying times. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, that, that is kind of a cliche analogy, but the, the airplane with the oxygen mask, you know, you gotta, right. you gotta help yourself first before you, help can yourself help other before you put somebody else on. Yeah. Yeah. So what you mentioned about the, uh, the film. So Bastards Road is a documentary that basically followed you as you were doing this incredible 5,800 mile walk. So talk to me about, you know, the, the process of filmmaking, but also some of some of the the highs and some of the lows. I know it was over a year, so I'm sure there was multiple. But you know, what were some of those that really kind of um, resonated with you? 
Well, you know, so the documentary, I had met Brian, uh, the filmmaker, through uh, an acquaintance. We'd all gone to, or my, through my best friend, uh, my childhood best friend, Dave Parks, who's also in the film. But we had all gone to high school together. He had graduated a year before I did. Uh, he, was a, he was a jock playing on the soccer team. I was a pothead. We didn't mesh. Uh, so I never really knew him. And then Brian had seen, and, you know, I had been, I had probably been about 1,300 miles into the walk by the time he reached out to me. He reaches out and I'm in Slidell, Louisiana, and we talked for about four hours uh, and I decided, OK, well, maybe we could do this as a documentary and maybe we could document it, you know, and if it sucks, at least the two, four guys have something to see uh, and we can go from there. And then I flew home uh, for a quick VA appointment that I couldn't miss uh, when I was out in Lubbock, Texas. So I flew home from Lubbock, uh, did the appointment, met up with Brian, did a two hour interview on camera felt each other out. I said, okay, this, this looks like a good idea. Cause really what I was doing at that point was, you know, I had to put my money where my mouth was cause I'm sitting here talking about, Oh, I want to help veterans and, and I want to help as much as I possibly can. And I just need people to listen to my story. And then I'm like, well, people aren't listening cause the internet sucks. <laughs> and so I was like, well, how do I do that? And I was like, well, John, if you're going to do it, you do it through Brian and you, you just tell a very honest story and then you just say what you're thinking. And so he came out and then flew another, I think he flew out another seven or eight times as I was, you know, continually crossing the country uh, and zigzagging all over the place. And he'd come out and he'd interview with me in some of these most gorgeous places. And he'd interview with uh, the guys that I met with and the Gold Star families I met with. And then, you know, at the end of this thing, you know, he's filming this entire, this entire end to this film. Uh, and it was, it was really cool to see it because I had no aspirations to build a documentary, none whatsoever. I didn't, I didn't think that was going to be a thing in my life. Uh, I didn't have any inclination to do it. And then once I realized it could help as many people as it's already helped, I knew that I had to, and I knew that I had to be, and I kind of, I say it the same way all the time, but it's like, I had to lay myself naked on the altar of humility and just like, Hey guys, this is who I am. And this is what I've done. And this is what I'm feeling. And it, it all comes out that way, man. And I've seen so many people watch this film, especially when we, you know, so the film festival circuit got screwed up because of COVID, but we, we premiered at the Santa Barbara international film festival in 2020 uh, in January. And we won the whole damn thing. Um, and I, I was floored. Uh, but you know, the first day we had a 150 person theater, maybe there was 112, 115 people in there. It wasn't packed, but it wasn't empty. And then the second day, all of a sudden, we're in the uh, we're in the Libero Theater, and it's 650 person theater. And I'm like, holy shit! And it's packed. It's sold out. It's full, and everybody's doing these uh, like there's this standing ovation at the end. Nobody leaves, and there's these, all these questions and how do we help and what do we do now? And you know, no, there's not a dry eye in the place. And I realized that this was really going to help everyone. And Santa Barbara isn't a veteran community area right there's there's some vets up there but it's it's just mo mostly a lot of retired people that really did really well for themselves in life uh and they're they're sitting there like i i've never seen anything like this i never knew any of this uh and so to see that civilian connection to the documentary is almost more important than uh the veteran connection because we understand what we experience and for me to put it out there like this yeah that's tough and veterans are like shit i feel this i understand this but for the civilian audience, I think it's even more paramount because now we're bridging the gap between 
misunderstanding or not understanding or no knowledge of uh, to a very in your face. This is what a lot of us feel. And you need to know that so that we can start coming together as a as a homogenous community versus civilian and, and veteran. Yeah, and it's the same with the fire service. I mean, sadly, you, you, I mean, I, I'll ask you: Can you think of a of a famous firefighters out there speaking about mental health? I mean, you know, I, I know someone more in the community, but most of us really don't. You know, uh, so yeah, no, I, I can't, I can't tell you I know any, but I do know that uh, Randy Lamons, who is now the battalion fire chief for uh, Lubbock, Texas, uh, I've, I, he asked me to come out last two years, well, two years ago now, they lost a firefighter uh, in a pretty horrific accident. And uh, they asked me to come out and uh, screen the film and then speak to those firefighters that were on the ground that day and then to the uh, and then to the cadets that were going through the academy. And so I, I came out. Uh, I brought my uh, girlfriend at the time, Tiffany, who's now my wife. I brought her out so she could speak to the spouses about what it's like to uh, experience a person that has to live with certain traumatic memories. And so she took the we watched the film. She took the wives to another room. I stayed in the auditorium and talked to the uh, talked to the firefighters uh, and it was eye opening and we had really great discussions and it was all about, hey, man, like, don't don't go into the hole. Don't go silent. And, you know, you have to talk about this and you have to talk about this with somebody You and you have to be vulnerable and you have to show uh, you have to show your emotions to your teammates and you have to let them see them so they know it's OK for them to feel that, too. Uh, and so it was very encouraging. I really enjoyed it. Uh, of course, I wish we could be there in better circumstances, but uh, we now go out to Lubbock every year uh, and we screen the film and we speak about it. And we're trying to get it to more and more firefighters and first responder houses uh, across the nation because we, it, it's powerful, uh, not only for the veterans, but for first responders as well. And because, I mean, I remember sitting in that theater and talking to those firefighters, that amphitheater and that morning I was, I woke up at Randy's house and walked into his kind of, I love me room with all his firefighter and military gear. And I'm looking at this thing. I'm looking at this firefighter helmet and I'm like, that's yours. And he goes, yeah. And I was like, God, I could not even imagine uh, what that is uh, because it's, it's melted beyond belief. I was like, that was on your head. And he's like, Oh yeah, man. I'm, I, I just, I couldn't put myself in that position to understand what the hell you go through and what that feels like to run into a fire and then to come out with that experience of, you know, maybe the kid that you went in to save died, or maybe you couldn't get to him. Um, and I'll always argue that veterans will see uh, war fighters will see really fucked up shit in a very truncated uh, period of time where they'll have to deal with that for a while and for the rest of their lives. Firefighters see fucked up shit every day constantly and you have no idea what you're running into in every single call as soon as that bell in the house goes off and you're out that you're out the door in like four seconds um you have no idea what you're walking into and you know it could be a cat in a tree or it could be a woman with like six minutes left to live and you never know and so it's my hat goes off to the the first responder units out there police firefighter emt those those guys and gals see horrific shit uh, on a basis that they don't even know it's coming. Yeah, absolutely, and that's that's my point. Is you know, the, in in the the first responder circles, we're starting to have that conversation now. But again, from the outside looking in, I don't think the civilians are aware of what the responder communities go through as well. The same right. as the military. So you know, m films like this, you know, not only are they, you know, really 
you're being vulnerable and opening the door for discussion within our communities, but you're also, you know, doing the same thing with the civilians too. So I think it's amazing. Now with yeah. that, did, did you, did you find after, you know, that the film was, was playing that you did see an influx down of people reaching out with, with basically me too stories. And I hate that because the whole hashtag thing got screwed up, but it is, it's people identify and realizing, Oh, I thought I was being a pussy, but actually I'm going through exactly what you were talking about. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of veterans have reached out. Uh, and I actually, hopefully I can actually be there in person for this, but uh, a veteran community out in uh, Hartford County in, in, or maybe it's Montgomery County in Maryland, uh, wants to have me out to screen the film and speak about it. Uh, but veterans are coming out in droves uh, and they're, they're telling me, they're telling others about this film. They're sharing very personal stories on Facebook, which I was like, wow, that's crazy. Uh, but they're doing it and they're, they're letting their hair down and saying, well, if Hancock can do it, I can do it. And they're like, all right, this is who I am. And this is my story. And I'm enjoying the hell out of that because that's all I want. Once you start talking about what you're experiencing, you never go back. It, it just changes from that point forward. When you start talking to somebody and they listen, you feel that connection and that they've absorbed what you were feeling. It's, it's life-changing. And I'm just happy now that I get to watch others change their own lives by just owning and talking about their story. Beautiful. Well, you mentioned, well, I mentioned in the film, we saw that, you know, right when you were having your crisis was when you became a father. So, yeah. um, and you touched about being married. Is it your father's, excuse me, your son's mother that you're married to, or did you find? No, no, no. Yeah. We're, we, we didn't never get married. That never worked out. Uh, and that's fine. We co-parent together, I guess that's okay. Uh, but we, uh, no, I, I met Tiffany when I got out to Phoenix about six months into my, uh, my new, you know, my new kind of life. I met her, uh, and then we just hit it off and we'd been, uh, we'd been together for three years, almost to the day when we got married, uh, just, uh, just this past April. Uh, so, uh, that was pretty amazing. And for her to, uh, to understand and to support me through the things that I go through, uh, because there are ups and downs, right? I mean, not every day is a great day. Uh, and you know, still certain dates and times, uh, very much affect me. Uh, and, uh, she can see it in my face and she understands. And so she's always just been very supportive of me and, uh, and of being open and talking about it. Yeah. Well, you mentioned leaning into alcohol around that, that time as well. And then you're, you're mountain biking and then go on the walk. How did you personally pull yourself away from, from the, the pull of alcoholism? Oh, I just, I got on the mountain bike. That's it. I just got on the mountain bike. And, you know, when all of a sudden I'm doing 60 miles in a day and I'm riding, you know, at 7 a.m. in the morning down through D.C. into Virginia and then back again and then out towards Western Maryland and back. And I'm like, oh, OK, that was a good ride. And then I get home and it's nine o'clock at night and I'm smoke check tired. So I just need to eat something, go to bed. And then I get up the next day and do it all over again. Um, and, you know, fortunately, I had two jobs at that point when I was training on that mountain bike. So I was working at a gym. Uh, and so I was riding my bike to that gym, opening and closing the gym and then riding my bike back into College Park to go be a, a line cook for the evening. Uh, and then after that, I would just ride my bike home at two o'clock in the morning when the kitchen shut down. And so I was constantly I was just too tired. And uh, and I found all of my comfort in just shredding miles on a mountain bike and just I was passing road bikers and they were like, what the hell? This guy's on a mountain bike passing me. And I'm like, yeah, dude, that's how hard I'm pedaling. <laughs> 
You ever see that video of the guy? He's 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 alongside a road race and he's doing a wheelie on a mountain bike. Keeping oh yeah, up with him. absolutely. <laughs> and it's awesome. It's like at Tour de France and the dude's doing a wheelie by guys that are like on mile ninety. He's like, I can keep up. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking again of of you know human performance. You know, 5,800 miles is an incredible, you know, feat of endurance. So with, you know, you touched on your, on your father early, early on saying about just, just take one more step. You know, what was the mindset that allowed you to, to cover those distances? Uh, it's that I, I couldn't quit anymore. It's that I'd quit everything I had already tried, right? I'd quit school. I quit, uh, I quit jobs. I quit relationships. Uh, I quit on my son. I quit everything that I tried uh, and I didn't want to do that anymore. And it came in the form of a phone call from my mother. Uh, I was talking to, I called her, I was outside of AP Hill. I'd been walking for about two weeks and I was like, I, I want to quit. I don't know what I'm doing. And, you know, she, she gave me the out to quit right there. And, you know, I can come get you tonight. You're only three hours away. I've been walking for two weeks and I'm three hours away. This sucks. I'm going to be on this road forever. Um, and I just saw, I, I kind of saw the futility in it all at the beginning and then realized that you've already quit everything you've ever tried. Like, don't quit this and get to Virginia beach, meet with your first set of guys and then continue on and just empty your gas tank. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to have any excuse anymore as to why I would quit. I was going to get hit by a truck or eaten by a grizzly bear before I quit. And, and it, fortunately, neither one of those things ever happened. Uh, but I didn't quit and I just kept going and it realizing, and I think this is kind of a cool thing that I'm realizing now again, is like, I was already dead again, right? Like something's going to happen to me on this walk and I can't control it. I can't control a truck hitting me. I can't control a mountain lion deciding I want to be a snack. Um, you know, I just can't control anything. And so in that endeavor of sacrificing control, I gained so much more of myself again and learned that I was capable to do it. Well, there must have been an element as well of, of seeming like divine intervention when you showed up at the Gold Star family or one of your brothers from the unit. Were there any, you know, retroactively again, were there any stories where you showing up actually made a huge difference in, in one of the people that you visited? Yeah, I think so. Uh, you know, there was uh, the Schrag family had taken a very large blow when Dustin died and the Schrag family was quite... Um, quite fractured from that. And, you know, uh, they were having a hard time. And then I, I got to them down in satellite beach, Florida, and we, we hung out. I, I spent Thanksgiving with them. Uh, and just to see them kind of come together and start being a family again and, and trying to process through it, uh, together. Uh, I was watching that happen and, uh, you know, they have a, they've been doing it for years, but they have a big, uh, Memorial day pig roast every year in Dustin's honor. And, uh, we went down for that uh, one year and all the Marines uh, from Fox company went down. Uh, they, there must've been, hell, there must've been 40 Marines there. It was awesome. And uh, we all just shared stories and allowed them to grieve with us. Uh, and it was, it was probably one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. Now, and how healing as well. I, mean, I got a, an impression from the film. How healing is it for the gold star families to just hear different stories from the unit? I could only imagine uh, because I haven't lost my son uh, to combat. So I, I, I wouldn't know, but I could only imagine how impressively healing it is because of how much desire Gold Star families have to want to be around other Marines that served with them and to listen to those stories and tell stories. And 
talk about the bad ones, uh, the ones that really sucked, and then talk about the good ones. And then to hear stories they've never heard before uh, is it, they're these just amazing gifts that you can give to a Gold Star family member. It, it, and it's something they just yearn for and they want uh, because you'll never, they'll never get to speak with their son again. And so they, to get as many stories as humanly possible, how, however stupid, however raw, however raunchy they are, they want them. They want every single piece of it. And, and I'm fortunate enough that I get to give that to them. Yeah, no, it's amazing. And just one more element, I want to transition to some closing questions, but what really stands out again from this is something that Sebastian Junger talks about a lot, which is the tribe. You know, yeah. I mean, you guys were in that tribe as, you know, your particular incidents. I mean, one minute you're in your tribe in Iraq, the next minute you're outside the tribe sitting in a classroom. And, but it seems like the healing element of, of, of that tribe coming together is so important. So whether it's retirees from a fire service or whether it's Marines getting back together or at least staying in contact in phone, internet, that seems so, so healing. Yeah. And I actually read tribe while I was on the walk and, uh, it was, it just sat in, and I, I read that. I read Siddhartha. I read a bunch of weird shit, but, um, when I read tribe, uh, I had gotten it from a buddy of mine who told Sebastian younger about me. And then he signed a copy for me. I left it with a buddy of mine in Montana. I was like, you need to read this book, homie. Um, but once I read that book, I was like, yeah, he hit it right on the head. And it is that, it is that separation, right? You come back and you just scatter to the winds and then you almost feel like it's a lost cause. You're like, well, I'll never, I'll never be able to see these guys again. And, you know, I got to move on with my life now. And that's not true. Um, the, the most healing and the most beneficial thing you can do is communicate with and be around the guys that you served with, because they're the only ones that understand what you've been through. They're the only ones that can absolutely say without like unequivocally, I understand. And because they've been in the same dirt and that's all it is. And using that. And so we have memorials and, and reunions every year because of this. Uh, I just was out uh, for 4th of July last weekend. I had, uh, I had two Marine brothers come out, uh, both of them in the film. So Scotty Gwynn and Taylor Wiley both flew out to uh, Phoenix to come just spend the weekend with me. And it was some of the best times on the planet. And then for them to meet other civilians that are now part of my family and they get to hear uh, those stories and they get to see how we interact and just see how much love and respect we, we have for one another. Uh, it blows everyone's mind, but it makes us feel amazing. Uh, and you, you can't, you can't disregard your unit. You can't disregard the people you served with and think you can do this alone. Some guys do it for sure. And that's cool. But the majority of people don't do it alone and you can't and you shouldn't. Absolutely. Well, I had Sebastian on the show a couple of times and the most recent one, he just written, just written, just wrote a new book called Freedom. And mm -hmm. in that he talks about uh, a hike or a ruck that he did himself. So I don't know if you've read that yet. If oh you yeah, I actually we were on uh, we were on some in uh, some I think we were on MSNBC together. He went right before I did, and uh, I've been trying to get in touch with him the whole time. I'm like, hey man, like talk to me. <laughs> but uh, he uh, yeah, he was talking about that book, and he had done I think he had done like 436 miles or something uh, with a couple guys, and just really got to see that. And uh, I won't downgrade the dude for only doing 436 miles, <laughs> but uh, no, and it, it, but it's true. And he got to see it and got to experience that, uh, that walking, that talking and that being with each other uh, piece uh, that is so absolutely vital and integral to growth and, and progression. Absolutely. Well, transitioning and some closing questions, speaking of books, 
Um, is there a book that you love to recommend to other people that can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated? Um, I, there's actually one. It's all about leadership. Uh, and I had a hard time getting through it at first because I was like going through some mental health stuff right when I got out uh, and was or when I was like transitioning between the whole idea of walking. Uh, but I was still like I was still mountain biking every day. But I, I read this book called Achilles in Vietnam. It's kind of cool. It transposes Achilles into the Vietnam War and how he would have, from the author's perspective, how he would have dealt with the different challenges of leadership, uh, poor mentorship, uh, and combat. And I just I found it really, really intriguing uh, that more people haven't read it because it is uh, it is very much based around the idea of good leaders and uh, what good leadership actually looks like. And then hearkening it back to Achilles and Troy, and I, it's just really cool. Yeah, I've never heard that mentioned before as well, so I'm going to have to put that on my list. So thank yeah. you. It's a good one, brother. I promise. Beautiful. Well, I'll ask you about other films, but firstly, where can people find Bastards Road if they want to watch that? Uh, so it's on iTunes. Uh, it's on YouTube, Vimeo, Vudu, Fandango now. Uh, I think there's a few others. And then it's also on TV, VOD, so just your local cable provider, uh, you can just type into your pay-per-view, you know, Bastards Road, and it'll come up. So if you just Google it or put it into your TV, I promise it'll show up somewhere and you should watch it. <laughs> Absolutely. I watched it on YouTube yesterday, so that's an easy place for people to get it. Yeah. All right. Well, then, aside from Bastards Road, are there any other movies and or documentaries that you love to recommend? Uh, actually, there's a really cool one. It has nothing to do with anything we talked about today, but it's, uh, I think it's called Operation Odessa. And it's uh, it's all about how this Russian this Russian mafia guy got in bed with the cartel and like bought a nuclear submarine uh, from the Russians for the purposes of drug smuggling. Uh, it, I mean, it's an impressive story. And then to hear it from the, the mouths of these guys that actually did this. Um, I thought it was pretty cool. I was captivated by it, man. And then you realize, because, I mean, I speak Russian. I've met a, a million Russians. Russians are crazy people. Um, <laughs> so, and they just, they have a whole different way of life. Um, but to, uh, that was a good one. Absolutely. Um, I don't know if there's really any military movies I would recommend. Um, honestly, uh, we've seen too many of them and, and none of them get it right. Uh, so there's nothing worth talking about in that realm, I think. Um, I think Team America World Police is probably the closest. Probably the closest. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so that's about it, brother. Okay, well, just again, another tangent just because of your your background. Um, again, speaking of the media, there's some um, you know, sides of them that seem to paint a very scary, threatening story of, of Russia and or China. You know, with, with your background, just what's your personal perspective of, of that threat? Uh, you know, I think I think the Chinese threat is probably out there uh, in a very technological way. Um, and but I mean, let's look at it from what one belt, one road. Right. And then the idea of what China wants here at 2049 uh, and how they're how they're gaining that. But then I've also been able to I've lived in Africa for over two years of my life and I've watched the Chinese rape them for minerals and uh, natural resources uh, and then to pay them pennies on the dollar for it. But because African governments are so damn corrupt, uh, the greed that is there really fuels a lot of China's interest. 
Uh, and so that's that's the big problem. Uh, you see that. And then, you know, on the Russian side of the house, you see these uh, you see these uh, attacks through uh, technology more than anything. Um, everybody's kind of gone away from the whole let's let's all go to war with each other uh, in some massive conventional. Let's blow the shit out of everybody. Uh, and we've gone into these cyber warfare uh, entities that uh, are 10 times scarier because now you can now you can destroy infrastructure and power grids uh, and things that uh, would cause uh, societal breakdown. Now, you mentioned being in Uganda as well. Just another tangent. I had a guy on um, Justin Wren, who's a UFC fighter, but he has a, a nonprofit called Fight for the Forgotten. And just yeah. through, again, the addiction element, he ended up helping the pygmies in there. Did you ever um, encounter those guys? Oh, yeah. I was down in uh, Bwindi in Penetrable National Forest, and uh, I was down there doing some... I, I had time, so I went down to go trek with the mountain gorillas because, hey, man, I'm in Africa. I got to go do this. Uh, and then to meet the pygmies and see them uh, and see how they live and see what they're experiencing. I was I was floored. I mean, you want to go somewhere that is absolutely one of the most beautiful places in the world, uh, but is also one of in stark comparison is one of the most sad places. You go to Africa because it's absolutely gorgeous, but life there is cheap uh, and you experience that on a day to day basis. Yeah, no, it's amazing. I think traveling is just so important to, to educate oh, absolutely. yourself. Absolutely. You're never gonna you're never gonna understand the world if you stay in Wheeling, West Virginia, homie. Like you gotta get out and do something. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Well then the next question, is there a person you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? You know, honestly, I think if you if uh, in the firefighter realm, I'd have on Randy Lamons, uh, the battalion chief for uh, Lubbock Fire Department. Uh, he and I were in Ramadi together. Uh, he was wounded. I, I became the squad leader after he was wounded. Uh, on April 18th, we got blown up on top of the seven-story building, and uh, his bell got rung real hard. Uh, and so I had to assume control of the squad. But he is uh, he has done an amazing job inside the fire department and just rose through the ranks. And now he's battalion chief. And uh, I, hell, he was my uh, uh, he was the guy that married us at my at my wedding, you know. So uh, he's yeah, an amazing individual uh, who is uh, more and more. I'm watching come out of his shell and speak about uh, the necessity of mental health for firefighters. Beautiful, perfect. Well, it sounds like the perfect person. Thank you. Yeah, brother. All right. Well, then the last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you. Um, what do you do to decompress these days? So I'm I hike, brother. I hike. I go out and I hike and. Uh, I, I walk long distances and I figure shit out, man. Uh, I enjoy hiking. I enjoy it so much. And so I, that's what I do. Um, and then in the winter months, of course, it's snowboarding and, uh, you know, just all the winter sports stuff that I love to do now. Uh, and so I just do that. And then, you know, honestly, uh, I just love spending time with my wife. So I do that too. Uh, I try to get her into as much hiking as humanly possible. Uh, but she hates hiking with me because, I'm just a steam engine and I just go and she's like, you know, we can stop for 10 minutes. And I'm like, Oh no, if we, if we stop for 10 minutes, we don't get to the top of this mountain quicker. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Well, you mentioned Bastards road project. So where can people find that? So www.bastardsroadproject.org. And uh, we'll open up the application process uh, nationwide uh, starting in the new year. Uh, right now we're focusing on uh, Arizona based veterans uh, just so I can work the kinks out. Uh, we are a fully 501c3 recognized by the IRS. 
Uh, and so you can donate on that website uh, if you choose to. Uh, you can help by volunteering with us if you're in the Phoenix area this year. And if not, next year uh, when we open it up and start moving these guys around to the PCT, the AT, the CDT, uh, we start doing some of these longer, bigger trails uh, for, you know, four or five, seven days at a time. Uh, we're going we're gonna to need volunteers and helpers uh, along the way to help with that. Beautiful. Love it. All right. Well, then the last question, if people want to find you, reach out to you, are there any places on social media or online aside from the websites? Uh, yeah. I mean, you just check out my personal Facebook is Jonathan Hancock. Uh, and then uh, my personal Instagram is at one magnificent, the numeral one. So at one magnificent bastard. Uh, you can find me there. Beautiful. Well, John, I want to say thank you. I mean, the, the courage, and I say this all the time, the courage of telling a true transparent story i know pulls these people you know like yourself through some of the dark places again but i see the incredible ripple effect the impact of that and like i said the the me too people realizing okay right. this i'm not alone i'm not stupid you know i'm not weak this is what other people are feeling too so i just want to thank you again for 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 having the courage to tell your story, for making the incredible film, walking the walk, literally, yeah, um, and coming on the podcast today. Absolutely, brother. Thank you so much for having me, man. Really, it's been a pleasure. And uh, it's been a really refreshing way to start my morning by talking with you.